Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and today's Jill's pin is Trump morphing into Nixon, which seemed appropriate for our guests today. It's a great pin. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by two people who you've surely read, seen, or heard in some fashion. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, they're joined uh, with us on the same screen, which is exciting. Um, While they really need no introduction, here's a quick summary. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and MSNBC political analyst, and before that was at The Washington Post for 20 years. Um, Susan Glasser is a staff writer at The New Yorker and also spent a significant amount of time at The Washington Post before that. And together, they've written numerous books, including profiles on James Baker III, Vladimir Putin, and now Donald Trump. And we are so excited to have them. And Victor did ask me, Peter, if you are related to (laughs) James Baker. And I said, no, you were not. (laughs) Anyway. No relation. Go ahead. No relation. No relation. Um, Anyway, Susan and Peter are married to each other and are out with a new book, that details the divisions within the Trump White House, both among White House staff and with international partners, which is an angle not many books have taken and I think our audience is going to find fascinating. So we thank you both for being here to talk about The Divider. Thank you so much for having us. So The Divider is truly a chronicle of the Trump administration. It's uh, more than 650 pages, uh, which means we can't cover everything in the book that we'd like to. But um, I'm sure our audience will want to read it after hearing all the revelations that we'll try to cover today. Um, One that we want to start off with is um, one with the the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and then then, uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar agreeing to basically a suicide pact by which they would resign together if Trump reinstated the family separation policy. Talk about how that, I guess, that um, incident and Trump's other cabinet officers and how they viewed him. Well, thank you guys for having us today. We really appreciate it. And, and, and Jill, you're right. There is some comparison to Nixon. We can talk about where they're similar and where they're not. Uh, one thing that is fascinating, as you point out, Victor, is this constant set of suicide packs and resignation discussions and will we all jump together uh, that happened throughout these four years. And the one you're talking about is particularly uh, dramatic because, of course, um, the family separation policy was one of those searing moments of the Trump presidency. And Kirsten Nielsen, who was the head of the Department of Homeland Security, had resisted the policy for months, but basically allowed herself to be pushed into finally agreeing to to authorize it and then became his public face, much to her own chagrin. And I think history will always record her as being the public face of that, even though she felt uh, that was unfair to her. And after they convinced Trump to overturn it, he continued to bring it back up again. And that's where she and Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, who also had a role in this, said, that's it. We're not going to live with this anymore. If he does that, we're going to jump together. They didn't have to. But again and again, you see moments like this where people working for Trump were tested. And they were tested about where their line was, where they were going to draw a line, this far and no further. And that's what makes the story over four years, I think, so compelling. Because it's not just a story about Trump. It's a story about the rest of us. How did the other Trump cabinet officers view him? I know there was a lot of speculation that um, they would invoke the 25th Amendment. Was that a serious discussion based off of your reporting and what you heard? Well, I think the seriousness is that it came up at all, right? Uh, This is not the normal stuff of cabinet deliberations. And it speaks to uh, Trump's uh, 
very unfitness for office, according to many of those who surrounded him, that the issue of the 25th Amendment was first raised by some cabinet officials within weeks of him taking office. And, uh, you know, in, in fact, one cabinet officer told us in reporting for the book uh, that, that they used to discuss this openly among some members of the cabinet, whether he was, quote, crazy, crazy or just, you know, somehow crazy like a fox. And, you know, it was a persistent theme. Of course, it recurs again uh, in the midst of the greatest crisis of the Trump presidency, the, the catastrophic ending uh, in, in the aftermath of the 2020 election in which uh, cabinet officials were then actively uh, discussing whether to invoke it. However, really one of the effects of the Trump era was to underscore the inadequacy of the 25th Amendment to deal with the problem of a president who has some kind of a chronic incapacity. Uh, and you might define, uh, you know, Trump's mental issues uh, as a chronic incapacity. Really, the 25th Amendment passed in the wake of John F. Kennedy's assassination was meant to deal with a temporary uh, a temporary incapacity, like going under uh, the knife for surgery, something like that. And uh, Jimmy Carter became very worried about this after Ronald Reagan was diagnosed after the presidency with Alzheimer's uh, and tried to get people to focus on it. But, you know, no, nothing was ever done. And of course, it seems inconceivable right now in our politically polarized country that we're going to have a new amendment to the Constitution to deal with a, a rogue president of the future. Well, if we have an amendment, I hope it'll be the Equal Rights Amendment, but that's a different issue uh, than we're talking about. So even though the cabinet was, as you described, concerned about his mental fitness for office, his capacity to hold the office, you didn't see a lot of them standing up to him at the time. So why do you think that was the case? What did your reporting show about that? Well, look, you know, I think what our reporting show was just how much he dominated the people around him. And he, uh, through force of personality, through fear, through intimidation, through what have you, he, you know, he, for, he, he, he pressured people into bowing to his wishes. I mean, the Kirsten Nielsen story is a, is a case study in this. Time and time again, he was calling her up at six in the morning, 11 o'clock at night. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Close the border, do this, do that. And half the time she would have to say to him, sir, we don't have the authority to do that. Or sir, that's illegal. You can't do that. And it never stopped it. He kept bringing it up. He kept saying, honey, just do it. That was his line. Honey, honey just do it. Honey, just do it, right? So, Julie, I mean, you'll find this funny. Kirsten Nielsen told her colleagues that if she ever wrote a memoir, she would title it, Honey, Just Do It, because that was such a rep repetitive phrase of his. At one point, he literally tells some people on her staff who say, no, you can't do X or Y. He says, well, it's okay. I'll just pardon you. So his idea of following the rules very different than any other president. Even Nixon, I think, understood that when he was doing something wrong, you know that we would, Jill, he understood when he was doing something wrong, that it was wrong, and he was violating rules, which is why he tried to cover it up. Trump never bothered to cover it up because he didn't, you know, it didn't matter to him. He would do it out and open. It's, that, that is just breathtaking. And I'm, my reaction, as you can see, is I can't believe, and I've, I've read this, but it's still shocking to hear you say this. And um, I, one other thing that you talk about, but we're facing a growing threat of nuclear attack from Putin. And so you talk about John Kelly, who was concerned that Trump would take our country to the to nuclear war with Korea and implored him to back down. And I'm just 
would like to have you talk about that is how you talk down a crazy president, a criminal president who thinks he can do anything he wants, who says, oh, no, those documents are mine. Um, what did his military advisors tell him and how close did Trump come to actually doing something that could have destroyed the world? Well, I think there is a persistent theme that emerges in the reporting in Trump and his interactions with the national security team in particular, all across all four years, is that he was this very reckless combination of ignorance and arrogance. He didn't, it wasn't that he didn't know stuff because we've had pl pr plenty of presidents who didn't know things. Uh, even somebody like, you know, Rhodes Scholar Bill Clinton was not very comfortable with foreign policy until well into his second term. But it's, it's that combination with he didn't want to know. Trump didn't want to know. He felt that he was more expert than the experts on almost any subject. And that included uh, nuclear weapons uh, and uh, the rest of the world. Um, and from the beginning, he, he pursued disruptive policies, almost heedless of consequences. So that was an enormous risk factor that, uh, you know, the generals and others were not, you know, really prepared to deal with. Uh, he didn't want to hear their briefings. And with North Korea, he was warned uh, again and again about the risks of the fire and fury and the amping up uh, uh, of the rhetoric. But he kept pushing his advisors in ways that I think Peter and I did not fully understand until we did the reporting for the book that to take steps that really would have basically signaled to Kim Jong-un that we're about to attack. And he watched one of his favorite TV generals on Fox News in January of 2018. Uh, this is at the height of the tensions. Uh, and he, he took away from that that he wasn't being tough enough. And he, he insisted, let's pull out all of the U.S. military dependents right now from the Korean Peninsula. I want it done today. Banging his thing, hand on the table. Uh, Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, had to rush over to the White House to you know, persuade him not to do this. Mark Esper, at the time, the secretary of the army, uh, is pulled out of a meeting and told, this is going to happen. We have to figure out how to do this. And what they explained to him again and again and you know, was, listen, if you do this, Kim will be convinced that we are about to launch a military attack on him, and then he will respond and boom, you know, we're off to the races. And Trump, by the way, never gave up on it. He, he temporarily relented. But that's the pattern with many of these incidents, and not just North Korea. On NATO, he wanted to pull out of NATO. It was much closer than we realized. He never gave up on it. He just temporarily, you know, would, would retreat. Uh, same thing on attacking uh, uh, inside Iran with a missile strike. This was a persistent theme right to the very end of his presidency. And his advisors, the one leverage point they thought they had was that they knew that Trump didn't want to have a full scale land war, you know, against Iran. And, you know, he just wanted to look tough. He wanted to launch these missiles. And they, they, they kept saying to him, you will be starting a major war if you do this. And it would be illegal. It would be a preemptive strike. Wow. He, he, he really couldn't really be talked off the ledge on many of these things for permanently. It was just a temporary retreat. A, a similar thing that you talk about in the book is his offer to give the West Bank to Jordan. And the, the king went, oh my God, this will destabilize the entire region. 
And so how was he talked out of that? Was it the king that did it or were his advisors involved in that? Yeah, it's a really interesting story, right? So he's calling up Steve Mnuchin, his treasury secretary, who happens to be in Davos at the beginning of 2018. And Mnuchin is meeting with King Abdullah from Jordan at the time and says, put, put him on the phone. Mnuchin puts the king on the phone. Hey, king, I got a good deal for you. I'm going to give you the West Bank, oh right? And, and you're right. He doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand the politics. He doesn't understand why the king doesn't think this is a great idea. Uh, and the king later tells an American friend, he says, I almost had a heart attack. I was doubled over. I couldn't breathe, he said. And I mean, you don't know whether Trump is serious on that kind of thing or just sort of throwing it out there because he thinks it's funny or provocative or whatever. But it clearly indicates how much he doesn't understand the region how, how, and, and that sort of cavalier approach to it. Yeah. These things are very serious people there. Someone very, doesn't understand the facts and isn't willing, as you pointed out just earlier, doesn't want to learn the facts. He doesn't care. He's just, yeah, right. I know more than anybody else. Yeah. So, exactly. He well, told us that solving the Israeli-Palestinian dispute would be easier than anybody thinks it is. Of course, obviously, he didn't <laughs> do that. And it wasn't easier than anybody thought it was. So. Right. I mean, that makes me wonder. I mean, so much of foreign policy is listening to, or I guess, reading intelligence, listening to intelligence, making judgments to deduce any pattern to how he consumed information. Did he have under any understanding? Like, like what was that process like for Trump? Because it seemed like he didn't understand anything. Well, you know, that actually is a great question because it gets to the very heart of what was Trump's definition of the job of being the president of the United States. And frankly, he interpreted it differently than any president ever has in our history. He essentially didn't like meetings, didn't want to show up in the Oval Office. Uh, he kept pushing his start time later and later. He was work from home before it was uh, cool. You know, um, it, literally, he was getting there, basically not coming into the Oval Office until after 11 a.m. Uh, wow. uh, within months of arriving there. He basically took over the, the small private dining room near the Oval Office. And that's where he spent most of his time. It was essentially his private media bunker. And he basically watched television for something like four to six hours a day uh, and then had this sort of constant free floating aides and different visitors coming into the dining room. And, you know, so, you know, it was kind of a meeting, but it was kind of a TV and tweeting session. And, you know, the, the, the feedback loop between the Twitter and the television was something truly remarkable that we have not seen before in a, in a president. One White House official that we spoke with uh, compared Trump and his definition of the job to Mike TV, the character in the Willy Wonka movie, the little boy <laughs> who loves watching television so much and that he asked Willy Wonka to transport him inside the TV. Oh uh, and that was Donald Trump. He was, he was a, you know, a petulant boy inside a TV. I mean, that's what I would want my retirement to look like watching four hours of TV and then starting my day at 11. But I mean, he's the president. So that just speaks to how irresponsible he was. I just have to say the little private dining room, as it is now known, was at one point Rosemary Wood's office. Mm. So It's had many uses. It it became um, a private office retreat for several presidents, but it also has been a private dining room, I think. Reagan used it as that. Anyway, it's, it's sort of an interesting room with an interesting history. Um, let's, let's move to, I mean, you talk about heroes and you talk about villains. I'm going to start with the villains. Um, and some of them include Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows, who were at one point um, in their careers, both 
competent and respected. And then they got to be true Trumpers. So what made them take this sharp departure into craziness to defend Trump at all costs? Well, I think everybody's story is somewhat different, right? But Rudy Giuliani, let's talk about him for a second because he's so interesting. We all remember him as America's mayor on 9-11. I'm reading Andrew Kurtzman's new biography of him now. And we forget a lot of the things that he did when he was mayor that sort of could look at presaging the way he is now. I mean, he was he was a little, um, he was, to say the least, idiosyncratic uh, even back then. But you're right, in the last few years, in particular in service to Trump, he has gone even further and further and further away from what we consider to be the mainstream, further away from conventional, let's say, politics to the point where, you know, even the people who admired him, people, you know, who were Republicans who worked with him, you know, today think he has gone you know, he's unhinged or, or they considered him to be drunk or whatever. They think he's a money grubber. They, they, they say terrible things about him behind his back, sometimes to his face. And they believe that he led Trump, you know, in, in a terrible direction. Trump was willing to be led. Let's just not like let him off the hook in that sense. But you could argue that Rudy Giuliani got him impeached twice, that he's the one who got him involved in the whole Ukraine thing, trying to convince him that somehow Ukraine was really the the instigator of election interference, not Russia. And you could argue that he's the one who fed his uh, Trump's mind with all these election conspiracy theories that weren't true and told him that he could somehow st still hang on to power if only he listened to him, which obviously, again, not true. And it was so bad that people like Jared Kushner were like saying after the election, if, if Rudy is involved with this, I want nothing to do with it. People who people who had some sense of what we call team normal by Bill Stepien, the campaign manager, team normal fought against team Rudy. Uh, which I guess would be team abnormal. And it, it's a remarkable story of how Trump allowed the most fringy characters, the people with the most outlandish ideas, access into the Oval Office. You mark, mentioned Mark Meadows. He's supposed to be the gatekeeper as the last White House chief of staff. Instead, a Republican we talked to called him the matador, meaning he just kept waving them all in. Come on in. Let's see. And no matter how how nutty or crazy your ideas may be, martial law, seizing voting machines, you know, whatever, you know, he didn't he didn't do anything to stop. It. And we we went into the story, we went into the book wondering whether Mark Meadows was more of a, you know, adult in the room kind of character or, uh, you know, a, a, an enabler. And, and I think the evidence now pretty clearly shows he was one of the enablers. Wow. So out of all the people that you interviewed, could you pinpoint were there others besides Trump that you thought were da as dangerous as Trump? Someone basically with a great deal of power who enabled the worst in Trump, um, someone in Congress or in, in his administration. Well, I, you know, Peter is talking about Mark Meadows. He's yeah. a very uh, important figure because Trump was a. Uh, uniquely not able to really operate on his own because he really had so little idea of what the federal government even was, how it operated. People forget this, but when Trump came to office, he was the only president in American history who never served a single day in government or in the U.S. military before he became the president. And of course, he combined that with a unique lack of knowledge. Uh, we quote one White House official as saying he knew nothing about most things. Uh, this is a guy who didn't know that Congress has the power to declare war under our Constitution. He didn't know that Abraham Lincoln was a member of the Republican Party, his own party. Uh, he did not know uh, that uh, the difference between the Baltics and the Balkans, uh, which came up when he was meeting with the leaders of the Baltics. Uh, you know, he didn't know so many things. And again, you can, you know, if you are open to 
learning that isn't necessarily uh, dramatic, but in Trump's case, it certainly colored what kinds of things he could and couldn't do to make the machinery, the complicated machinery of government work. So, you know, without all of these people around him, he would have just been an angry old dude shouting at the television uh, in between golf games. But, you know, he had people and uh, like Mark Meadows and the progression in the four years. And that's why we really wanted to write a four year book was to show how uh, it evolves and how at the beginning you had people around him who, you know, sought in many ways to constrain him. John Kelly, his second White House chief of staff. We don't know that Kelly could have prevented January 6th, but we do know pretty certainly that he would have thrown his body in front of the Oval Office door rather than to have people like Mike Flynn and Giuliani in there arguing for martial law, uh, which is what actually happened at one extraordinary meeting in December of 2020. Uh, so I would say Meadows is, is, is probably the character, uh, you know, who, who shaped not only the catastrophic uh, ending after the election, but so much of the polarized response to the uh, coronavirus pandemic was also, Meadows was appointed Trump's fourth and final chief of staff uh, in March of 2020 at the exact beginning of the pandemic hitting the US shores. He was consistently a voice for polarization, for partisanship. Uh, he was the one who was most vehement about not wearing masks and the president shouldn't do it. Uh, he was consistently challenging, independently challenging, even the scientific judgments of the independent leaders of America's public health agencies. And then you build up to this you know, incredible uh, attack on the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And in our reporting, it became clear that, you know, Meadows, uh, who had been the leader of the extreme hard right Freedom Caucus faction in the House of Representatives, uh, that he was applying those tactics and techniques into running the White House. And he was also telling people what they wanted to hear. So to the Jared Kushners and others, he would say, don't worry, we're going to get Trump over this. We're going to get him out of the you know, Oval Office. At the same time, he's sending texts to Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, you know, basically saying this is you know, a divine fight of my life uh, to challenge the election. Wow, that's great reporting. Is there any way to make these true Trumpers like Mark Meadows believe in reality and facts again? Is there an off-ramp for any of them? What, what's your suggestion on that? Well, I mean, the really great thing about being a reporter is that we don't do solutions. We, just, uh, <laughs> we identify problems. I mean, look, you know, it, it, there's always been a segment of American politics that, that subscribe to conspiracy theories. It was open to, to some of the most fringe ideas out there. The difference is they don't usually have access to the Oval Office, and they're not usually the occupant of the Oval Office. I mean, you know, we, we, you know when Lyndon Johnson appointed the warrant, it was to tamp down the conspiracies about the Kennedy yeah. uh, assassination, not to encourage them. Whereas uh, Donald Trump, of course, got into office on a, the, the basis of a conspiracy theory that he had made up or at least subscribed to the notion that somehow Barack Obama was not born in the United States, even though he knew it wasn't true. So we're in a very different state of affairs. We've got a former president now who may be a presidential candidate out there holding rallies in which the QAnon symbols are being uh, flashed and, and played over the, the, the mic. So it, it, we're in a different moment. I don't know how that changes, but for the moment anyway, 
the what used to be considered the fringes has been injected into the mainstream. I mean, it really, really scares me because, like you said, your book is a chronicle from the beginning of the administration to the end of the administration. We're seeing that continue to evolve. And if he does get elected as president, I can't even imagine what this administration, what that administration would look like and the staff that would be involved in that. Yeah, that is one takeaway from the book is, uh, you know, the progression toward ever more extreme both uh, advisors and ideas that Trump uh, would gravitate toward and that he, you know, in a way, the story of the four years is of him pushing away uh, almost anyone who, you know, told him what he didn't want to hear, uh, who didn't, you know, wasn't willing to go along with his most extreme ideas. There is, you know, this very chilling moment when we are doing research for the book and speaking with a very senior national security official who had spent a lot of time in the Oval Office with Donald Trump, who told us that, uh, you know, Trump by the end of his four years really resembled the velociraptors in the first Jurassic Park movie. Uh, you remember that horrifying scene when uh, the children uh, run into the industrial kitchen and think they're safe from the velociraptors, but then click the door handle turns and you realize that the velociraptors have learned to open the door. And so to hear that from a senior national security official, and I think what they meant in particular was Trump's uh, figuring out how to operate the machinery of government and how to choose people who would do what he wanted. It's a, it was a foreboding uh, comment about what a second Trump term might look like. Wow. I mean, that's why your book is so important. And it's, I mean, it has a lot of what is going to get attention in the news, a lot of revelations. And I want to, I do want to go to those because there are so many. Uh, Victor and I have each picked out some that are particularly of concern to us. Um, and I, I do want to talk about a few of those. But your book sets everything in a context that makes it much more than just a series of revelations. It, it is... While you say you're not offering solutions, you are showing a serious problem that America needs to deal with and avoid, and it can avoid by not voting for this man again. But um, one of the things that struck me particularly was, of course, relating back to Nixon's enemies list, and you describe how Trump regularly ought to use his power in government. To go to not mine. Sorry. <laughs> hey, I, this happens with Brisby all the time. So what's your dog's name? Uh, our dog is Ellie and she's a very oh. good girl, but uh, there is a delivery person at the door and there's just, <laughs> you know, uh, no stopping her when, when that's the case. Yeah. Defending the person at the door is a guarantee of Brisby. Yeah, I've had that through. happen yes. on live TV. So, uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. Usually yeah, it's Jill's sure. dog. So yeah, mine's mine's louder and worse than that, and not so easily <laughs> shut up. But um, I've learned to just okay. I just keep talking when he's doing it. But anyway, so this his his using this to go after his enemies. He he blocked. He wanted aides to block a CNN merger, and he tried to stop a uh, contract from the government going to Jeff Bezos because he hates Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And um, he tried to get foreign intelligence officers, uh, Clapper and Brennan, to be denied their security clearance because um, he didn't like what they said about him. And he even wanted to abolish the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I mean, these are things that, I mean, you report them because they're true, but you read them and go, well, they're making this up. This can't be true <laughs> because it's just too 
ridiculous. So can you talk a little bit about that and how his staff was able to prevent him from actually carrying these things out? Yeah, I think, in fact, they are in some ways Nixonian in their character, right? I mean, again, you know better than I do, Joe, but I read a bunch of the Watergate books again this summer because of the 50-year anniversary and, re and reminded that it was so much more than just a burglary and a cover-up. There were so many of these instances where Nixon also tried to use the power of government to punish uh, enemies. And the difference, of course, again, I think Trump was more brazen about it. He didn't see that as being something to be to hide or to be ashamed of, right? Yes, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Let's punish Amazon and make sure they don't get preferential treatment from the Postal Service. Or let's see if we can't uh, block the merger of Time, and, and, uh, Time Warner and AT&T because CNN uh, is part of that and we can force uh, them to sell CNN. Maybe, in fact, Rupert Murdoch. And you're right, you mentioned Clapper and Brennan. It's not just that he wanted to take away the security clearances, it's that he demanded it according to one White House official 50 to 75 times he brought that up. It was a, pers it was a persistent obsession of his. And to him, you know, Nixon had his enemies list, but he didn't put it out in public because he knew you weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. Trump just said it out loud again and again. And he referred to the press as enemies of the people. Again, I think Nixon thought we were too, right? He thought a lot of people were his enemies, but uh, Trump had no problem adopting the language of the Stalinist uh, era regime in Russia that was used to send people to the gulag. And when even when told that that was dangerous rhetoric, had no problem keep using it. I mean, I, I was in the Oval Office with him once when my publisher, A.G. Soldberg from the New York Times, told him that his anti-press rhetoric went beyond the normal politician criticism of the press, which is fair enough. He said, what you're doing is you're putting in danger journalists, not here in America even, but around the world, because you're empowering the worst of the dictators in our planet to use phrases like fake news and enemies of people to justify imprisoning journalists, closing newspapers, even uh, doing violence to them. And that didn't seem to impact him whatsoever. I mean, they're, speaking of the press, I mean, one of the, the networks that really gave him power and put him, as, put him in a position to spread lies is Fox News. And um, there was one section of the book that really concerned me. And a lot of the podcasts that we do, we try to cover the media and, and their role. Fox News tried to get its basically news department's uh, decision desk to reverse its election night call Um that Biden won Arizona. Um, there were furious protests at the Trump White House. Um, even Brett Baer, uh, the network's main evening anchor, suggested that the call can be reversed and Arizona uh, put in Trump's column, even though the president never led there. I I'm wondering, what can you shed light on in terms of Trump's relationship with Fox and how much did Fox enable Trump, uh, I guess, you know, anchors like Hannity and Tucker Carlson and uh, maybe even some of the more traditional anchors like Brett Baer. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm glad you spotlighted that reporting. That is, I think, you know, some significant new reporting that we had in the book that suggests that one of the reasons that, you know, every White House might put pressure on, uh, you know, its allies might call up and complain uh, to a network. But the expectation here was that there was almost a symbiotic relationship between Fox and the Trump White House in a way that uh, I think is largely without precedent. I mean, look at the revolving door, how many uh, uh, Trump officials ended up on the air on Fox uh, and, and, and how many Fox people were hired into the Trump White House. It was really it was almost intertwined in a way that was extraordinary. And because the president was spending so much time watching television, as we already talked about, uh, you know, some of his closest allies uh, 
were very open that they found themselves often deciding to communicate with the president on television. Jim Jordan, who was kind of Mark Meadows' running mate and partner in the House Freedom Caucus, one of Trump's top allies on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, he had an early experience with this uh, at the beginning of the presidency where he said something on uh, Hannity and uh, immediately got a response from the White House, realized that was the best way to communicate with the president. Lindsey Graham, who, remember, flip-flopped very famously from being a critic of Donald Trump, who called him a kook, who uh, being his best friend in the Senate, sometimes decided that instead of talking about something with Trump on a phone call, he would do it on television in order to get Trump to take it more seriously. So, you know, again, it's an extraordinary thing. Trump was often on the phone uh, at night with Sean Hannity after his show, giving him an after action report. He actually called Hannity to the stage, uh, you know, in one of his pre-election rallies. Uh, and, you know, he would literally, I'm sure you remember the spectacle, Trump would actually go down the roster of the Fox News hosts and he would sort of talk lovingly. Well, there's Laura. We all love Laura, meaning Laura Ingraham. There's Judge Janine, you know, and it just it was it was a remarkable fusion of a politician and a television network in a way that, uh, you know, is not good for our democracy. Yeah, for sure. And so, all right, that was certainly one of the concerns listed in your book was this stuff with Fox. But one of my other concerns had to do with, and and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but Trump trashed women. I mean, he just did. He, he trashed Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley. And uh, I mean, I go back to, I thought his campaign was completely over when he said, I grab because I can. Um, and I thought, well, that's it. He can't treat women that way. But of course he did. So what do all these stories reveal about Donald J. Trump? And what would it mean for him to be back in office for women? Well, you're right about that. He, he said that he wouldn't put Nikki Haley on his ticket in 2020 in place of Mike Pence because of her complexion problem, as he said. He would, he would joke with people that Nancy Pelosi was the reason not to have plastic surgery. He, he criticized Kirsten Nielsen to her face saying, you know, how, you know, how come you, uh, you look so tired? You don't look good. You know, it was, it was a constant source of, of diminishment of women and obviously uh, something in which he exercised power, I suppose, right? In other words, this is him demonstrating that he is in charge and he can belittle anybody in particular women. And, you know, none of it should be a surprise. As you rightly point out, Jill, we knew before the 2016 election exactly his attitude toward women from that tape from Access Hollywood. He said it was just locker room banter, but that's, you know, I've been in a lot of locker rooms. I don't remember that. That's not normal. And it's not, you know, it wouldn't have been acceptable under any previous you know, president, at least in the modern era, and he got a free pass. And I think that that emboldened him. If, if, he, if he could get away with that and still get elected, if he could treat Hillary Clinton the way he treated her and still get elected, then why can't he do or say that about anybody? And his defenders would say, look, he's an equal opportunity uh, insulter. He insults everybody, insults men, women, whites, blacks, browns, everybody. And there's something to that, obviously. He doesn't spare anybody for the most part. But it, it was particularly vituperative with women. And I think particularly, uh, um, you know, uh, the kind of thing where he gave permission to people 
who had learned that they weren't supposed to say things like that. Even if they felt them, they weren't supposed to say it. And he made it possible for people to say things out loud that had been sort of wiped out of, of society. And, and he's fueled this culture war backlash to, you know, the, the movement against sexual harassment and sexual uh, predators. He defended Roy Moore. He defended all of these guys, you know, people who were accused of spousal abuse, yeah, accused of assault, who were accused. Anytime somebody was accused, he would say, well, that's just somebody making it up. Yeah, that's it, it. All of that is true. And of course, the image that comes to my mind is him looming over Hillary Clinton during that debate. Horrible, which I, I wasn't going to ask this question, but because of this conversation, I am. Uh, you talk a little bit about Melania's relationship with the president. And um, can you say something about that? Because it, it's one of those things a lot of people wonder, how could anyone stay with this man? Well, I mean, look, when you've had three spouses, obviously, uh, the answer is not necessarily forever. Uh, but um, look, it's it's a dangerous business to try to, you know, understand what goes on inside, you know, a, a marriage. I, I do think people seem to have misread Melania Trump initially. Remember, uh, at the beginning of the Trump presidency, there was all this sort of at the Women's March, there were the posters that said, you know, hashtag free Melania. You know, it, it's clear that she also shared with Trump a certain transactional approach, uh, both to their partnership and to her attitude about, you know, somewhat unwillingly being in the public eye. She's the first foreign born first lady since um, uh, Louise Adams, mm -hmm. uh, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the 19th century. And uh, she did not really become identified with a cause or uh, good works as, as many first ladies have in the past. Um, you know, perhaps her most famous public moment was an extremely divisive appearance uh, during the family separation crisis when she goes down to the border and is wearing uh, a, a jacket that's written on the back. I don't care. Do you in graffiti style lettering? And uh, you know, this creates a, an enormous, uh, sort of debacle in the midst of the bigger political debacle of the child separation issue. And, you know, so she was a very difficult figure. One of the interesting things, our colleague and friend, actually Mary Jordan in her biography of uh, Melania Trump learned this information, but it's so telling uh, that when she stayed in New York for the first few months of the Trump presidency, uh, one of the reasons she was doing that was in order to increase her leverage, she was renegotiating her prenuptial agreement with Donald Trump. And I find that it, it does seem that there's a mercenary aspect to her as well as her husband. Wow. That is so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I think we're going to run out of time. And I cannot tell you that we have not gotten through even half our questions, but um, I'm going to let Victor ask the last one or two questions and then that'll be that. So there are so many revelations in your book. Um, and like we said throughout the podcast, we can't get through all of them. But for both of you, I'm curious, what do you want your readers to take away uh, from this book? Well, I think what we want, our, what them to take away is to understand that January 6th was not an outlier. It was not an aberration. It was not just something that, oh my gosh, who could have imagined this happening? That in fact, it was the almost inexorable culmination of a four-year war on institutions. And that's why we did a four-year book. It's not just about one aspect of the presidency. It's about how we got from point A to point B, from American carnage to hang Mike Pence, right? That this, this four-year story was a march toward this violent ending 
where a sitting president for the first time in American history tried to hold on to power, even though the electorate has said, you're out of here. And, and, and especially as you look back in hindsight, especially as you sort of watch the events unfold, you see how we're getting to that denouement, that conclusion. And the other thing I think that's important to take away from this is that, as, as, as Susan often says, it's, it's a work of history, but it's also potentially prologue. That what it's not the story is not really over because it could happen again. And if it does, what you learn, I think, from this book are the things he tried to do, wanted to do, was frustrated because he couldn't do in his first term are things you can imagine for sure he's going to do and have a freer hand in the second term. Last question, because you both are such respected journalists, I, I know a lot of my friends, I've been telling them that we are having Peter Baker and Susan Glasser and they were like, oh my gosh, like they were inspired. Um, what do you say to young journalists, especially now we have this, this whole podcast is intergenerational. We try to um, ask questions from different perspectives. I think Victor froze, but what he's about to ask is what's your advice to his generation? <laughs> oh, sorry. Looks like my wife. I, but... I don't know if you heard, but I yeah, asked the yeah. question. Awesome. Well, look, I mean, you know, far be it from us to say anything, but I do think that, you know, what we hear consistently from young people is they've come of age and this very dyspeptic, dystopian almost moment in American history. And, you know, look at the drumbeat of you know, bad news. We had the 2008 financial crisis and, uh, you know, the rise of Trump and the, the internal risks in our society, you know, the, the nightmarish prospect of climate change becoming all too real. Uh, now we have a, you know, a terrifying land war, uh, you know, between uh, Russia and Ukraine and in, in Europe. We have the rise of, of uh, an authoritarian China that's imprisoning people. So, you know, that there's a lot of anxiety embedded in in the world and not uh, this sort of clear narrative. Peter and I are products of a different and, and more optimistic moment in time and a more optimistic generation, right? You know, the end of the Cold War and uh, all Wait, that. We're not part of the young generation well, anymore? Well, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry to break it to you. We're, we're, in, we're yeah. in between. But my point is, I think we have taken comfort uh, in a way that that maybe one should from the cycles of history. And, uh, you know, every generation has to own their own, you know, part in, in, in the American narrative. And, you know, for journalists, I actually think this is a great moment to become a journalist. And it's a great moment to realize, you know, that we're back to first principles here. I can't think of any work that I have done in several decades as a professional journalist that matters as much as telling the story and trying to get as much of it into the historical record as possible of the Donald Trump presidency. This is the gravest threat to American democracy that has just ever existed in my lifetime. And, you know, we're not, uh, you know, this is why we got into journalism in the first place is to show up, is to bear witness, is to, you know, be on the side of the facts uh, and to understand that that was our role uh, in this system. And so I feel like it actually is an invigorating and important time to be a journalist. You know, I grew up in a generation when we had all the same facts on all the sources of news. So you only had three networks, but they all had the same facts. They might have different policy interpretations, but they did not dispute the information. And I long for a time when we could return to facts mattering. And 
one of Victor's and my goals has been to try to figure out what is the way to get the people who are supporting Trump based on no factual predicate to actually understand what the facts are, because the facts mean we are in danger, as you've pointed out, from so many things, including the risk to democracy. And that if we don't change our laws and amend the Electoral College Act and do something about the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts being eviscerated by the Supreme Court, we're going to all die. I mean, it's just as simple as that. So your book becomes really important. And I, I'm urging everyone, Democrat, Republican, Independent, Forward Party, if anybody has joined on to that movement, uh, to read this book and to be cognizant of what you are pointing out that is so important about democracy and saving it. And we thank you and we regret that there's so many more great things in your books. So follow Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, wherever you, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, you probably aren't on TikTok, right? <laughs> on TikTok. but wherever they are, follow them. And I know that you're going to be on every television station talking about your book. So everyone should pay attention and the reviews are terrific. Um, so just pay attention to this book and you will learn why we have to protect democracy. And we thank you for writing the book. We thank you for joining us today. And um, we'll look forward to maybe talking to you again about this because uh, there's so much more to talk about. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I know. Both of our react we're on a mind melt today, Jill. Yeah, I mean, right. It's just so much during that administration. And, you know, right now it kind of feels the same way in terms of the news. It's just always constant. My, my, my phone is blowing up with CNN and NBC notifications. And, you know, sometimes with this book, I liked it because it just allowed us to relive those four years and just realize right. how much there was. And, you know, we, we, don't, we have about 10 minutes left. What would you say was your biggest takeaway from the book? Or what are you most concerned about after reading the book? Well, I, I mean, I'm concerned about Donald Trump's mental capacity, both yeah. intellectually, not understanding the policies and the threats to America, but also his viciousness, his... Um, vanity, his, everything is about me. It's yeah. my documents. It's my right. It's my generals, um, which is a danger to America. And I mean, the January 6th events, of course, are horrifying. And I think that the divider makes clear that it was almost the inevitable conclusion of everything that came before it, that Trump from the beginning eroded trust in our institutions, wow. our government, our agencies. Um, and he did it slowly, like like we've talked about with so many other um, experts. Slowly. It was a slow drip, drip, just like, you know. We like Hitler, I'm sorry to say. Like Hitler Germany. didn't yeah, exactly. democracy at once. Right. Yeah. He first said, Jews can't own a store. Jews can't work in a store. Jews can't shop in a store. Yeah. Jews can't leave the ghetto. It and by the time it got to the last part, it it was it's sort of like putting the lobster in boiling water. 
Yeah. If you put it in cold water and heat it up, it doesn't try to escape. If you put it in boiling water, it realizes the danger it's in. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, and it makes me think about all the accountability uh, at the Department of Justice, the New York Attorney General, um, the Fulton County DA, and will the walls close in on him before it's too late to stop him? Will there be a conviction of something that bars him from ever running for office again? Because I, you know, do I think justice demands that he be convicted? Yes, I do. Do I think the most important thing is preventing him from running for office, even if he doesn't go to jail? Yes, I also believe that. I think that we survived four years, but as Peter and Susan just said, he's learned. And if he has another four years, he will be more impactful. He will do things that he wanted to do and was unable to, and he will be unstoppable. So I think the risk of 2024 is the thing that I take away from this is that we have to pay attention. We have to get the message out, not to the people who are listening to me on MSNBC and you on MSNBC, because you're on a lot now too. Not as um, much as you. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you're on. I mean, this is like, yeah. you have to start somewhere, Victor. Yeah. Um, and so I think the people who are listening to MSNBC already get this. Yeah. It's the people who are listening to Fox. And right. how do you get these facts to them? I think you and I have talked about that. I have um, a former friend uh, from hundreds of years ago. Uh, well, maybe not hundreds. Okay. But 50 years ago who has become a Trumper and who in my attempt to understand how she got to believe that Donald Trump actually did not lose this election, I completely failed because she simply rejects out of hand that there were 60 lawsuits that were thrown out, including by Trump judges. She simply rejects the fact that there were the ninjas in Arizona that were hired by the Republicans to find more votes for Trump, who found more votes for Biden. And if you don't accept those things that are factual and real, you can't ever move past the falsehoods and the lies that people are believing. So that's that's my concern. And that's why I think the book is so important. It's terrifying. And, you know, I, I know some people who aren't as extreme as that, but a lot of the the people who I talk to at school, you know, there's a, a race here in L.A. between Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. And Rick Caruso is someone who was a former Republican, uh, has no political experience. And when I ask my friends why they support Rick Caruso, their answer is, oh, well, just because he's cool or because he's a businessman. And it's like, you know, at some point we have to make sure. And, and I think we've talked about this before. Maybe the solution is getting civics education back into the classroom and make, doing a better job educating people because there's something that's failing us. And, you know, hopefully the Smartmatic and Dominion lawsuits against Trump or against uh, Fox News will make a difference in, in holding them accountable and telling well, them that they can't spread lies. I think critical thinking skills is what's yeah. missing. Yeah. And in our episode recently with leaders of Gen Z, um, one of them, I think Marianne maybe was the one who said she had a teacher who taught her yep. how to evaluate sources of information right. so that she could determine what sources of information yeah. are real and which are just 
totally made up. And I, mean, I think in this, I think in this environment, you know, there, there's a lot of emphasis at schools on math and algebra and, 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 and calculus. And you're not saying those are not important skills, but we should also be adding civics education, information literacy or news literacy. I mean, these are things that will last so far. And if you can get young people to pay attention to things sooner and know how to evaluate decisions, right. I mean, that, that will make a big difference. But, um, you know, this book, I think if everyone can read it, if it can be a mandatory book in history classes, I mean, this has to be a must read for everyone, no matter, like you said, if you're a Republican, Democrat, a part of a forward party or another party, um, it's really a book for everyone to read because there's just exactly. so much that we all have to pay attention to. And history classes do actually inc include books because I um, speak every year at the University of Minnesota Law School, mm -hmm. and I also am now speaking at American University for a class um, that assigned reading includes the Watergate Girl. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of fun. And um, but for now, I think let's say to our audience that we hope you'll read the book yes. and we hope you'll come back for more episodes like this and that you will email us with any questions you have or any suggestions for people you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like us to cover. Yes, yeah, so you can find us um, at youtube.com slash Politicon. We're here every single week. So be sure to find us there. Like this video, comment, let us know what you think. Also, click the bell for our weekly notifications. Like we said before, we're here every single week. So watch us here. And if you don't watch us on YouTube, you can also listen to this episode wherever you follow your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform. We drop our episodes every Wednesday morning, bright and early. Uh, so find us there. And again, we thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. And we'll see you next week for another great episode.